which was in the 1860s. That was one of the main things that was addressed there was the issue of slavery. And in the middle of the Civil War, in 1862, the fall of 1862, President Abraham Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation to free all the thousands, millions of slaves that were in slavery at that time. And it was signed in the fall of 1862. It went into effect on January 1st of 1863. However, most slaves did not experience their freedom at that point in time. It wasn't until the, the Union Army basically came to their area and defeated the Confederates that they experienced their freedom. And so this official proclamation had happened saying, slaves are free. Yet most of them did not experience that. Uh, typically, most people think of the end of the Civil War. It was April 9th, 1865, when General Lee surrendered. And so that was, we think, okay, that's the end of the Civil War. And at that point, by that point, most of the slaves came into this whole new experience of, of freedom that they'd never experienced before. But there were still places where, although the Emancipation Proclamation had gone out, and the, the surrender had happened, there were still parts of the Confederate Army that were still holding out. And there were still skirmishes and battles going on. And so it wasn't until a couple months later, in June of 1865, that the last place, the, the Union Army came down to Galveston, Texas, and they defeated the last Confederate Army. And then they went into the, the public square, and they read the Emancipation Proclamation that had been written two and a half years earlier. And at that point, the slaves there in Texas realized, we are free. And there was this great celebration and party going on. And that was when the last of the slaves legally or, or, or ex came, began to experience their freedom, their, the end of slavery. And that's, Manhattan every, every June celebrates Juneteenth. This is a celebration that happens all over the country in communities to celebrate when the proclamation of freedom came and the slaves actually experienced their freedom. And that's what we're talking about in this series. This, we're going through the book of Romans, and it's all about, it's called Good News for Everyone. It's the story of the gospel, which is the proclamation of good news that we, that we can hear and respond to because Jesus has defeated evil. We, last week we talked about the powers of evil that try to hold us captive and we try to live autonomously. We're actually under the power of evil forces. But Jesus defeated those forces at the cross and with his resurrection. But it's only when someone hears that message, hears that proclamation themselves and responds to it, that they can come into the freedom that God already won for them. And there are... There are, uh, you know, we like to think of the gospel or good news. A lot of times it's, it's kind of light and fluffy and happy. Like, yeah, the gospel, yeah, it's, it's great. But to bring good news, you have to deal with the bad and the ugly. And that's really what we're talking about today in Romans chapter 1. Is that the gospel is good news because there are bad and ugly forces in the world. The forces of sin, the forces of the powers of evil that are very much present. And the gospel doesn't just say, hey, go to church and try to be nice. But it says, 
No, there are real forces of, of sin, real forces of evil, but God has dealt with them and is dealing with them in Jesus and through the, through the gospel, through this good news. Um, really, but this is, this is good news. We, are, we should be coming through these next eight weeks with just a greater just enthusiasm and really our hearts being warmed to what God has done for us in Jesus and, and with the gospel. We are believing that, as Christians, that the message of Jesus, the, me- the good news of the gospel, is the answer to the human dilemma. The human problem, every, every human dilemma, is answered in the good news. And that's good news, because we got a lot of dilemmas. And so, we, we've mentioned this the last couple of weeks, but the word gospel, it literally can be translated as good news, but it was always, it was the message announcing the reign of a new king. And so the good news is that Jesus has become king. Jesus has established his kingdom. It was also, interestingly, like the, the Roman emperor would, his birthday announcement, that like, hey, it's Caesar's birthday. That, that edict or that, that proclamation would go out. That was called the gospel. Good news, it's Caesar's birthday. So I, I, this is good news for Caesar, at least. Um, but it's really this announcement involving the reign of, of a king. And so our, our heart is that we would have a, a crisp awareness of what the gospel is, the impact it has on our lives, the impact it has on the world, and that we would be inspired and equipped to bring this good news to people around us. And that's also the idea that's good news for everyone, that for everyone is really huge here. It's that not just for religious people, not just people who have a Christian background, not just people who are good enough or moral or certain ethnicity or certain nation. No, it's good news for everyone. And we look at the, the background of the book of Romans. We're going to take a few minutes and do that, a couple minutes and do that. Um, Romans is funny. We, 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 put, we posted our, our, this image on Facebook saying, we've got a new series coming. Romans, good news for everyone. And some random guy responded and he said, you know, that's kind of funny because the Romans were bad news for almost everyone. <laughs> so like when you see this, he's reading like Romans, good news for everyone. Like, no, the Romans are coming to your neck of the woods. That's not really good news. Like they're taking over. So this is not about the people, the Romans. We're talking about the, the letter that was written to the church in the city of Rome. All right, that's what we're talking about. So this is in our Bible. It's the, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in the, in, the, in the city of Rome, in the capital of the Roman Empire. He probably wrote this around AD 57, so about 25 years after Jesus had died and ascended to heaven. And the, if you remember, those of you who know the story of, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had, had been poured out. There were people, Jewish people from all over the world, gathered in Jerusalem to, for this Jewish celebration. And among those people, it lists the nations, there were people from Rome. And so some of those people heard the, heard the message of Jesus, heard the message of King Jesus, responded, went back to Rome, and the church in Rome began. And there are also very early accounts in the second century that say that the, that the Apostle Peter had gone to Rome, and he really helped establish the church um, in Rome. So this was a church that was established, but it was still very young. It was a lot of biblical scholars think there were maybe less than 100 people in the church. I don't know if that's true, but it, it was young in its life. It was not that well established. And it had two main groups of people. 
like most churches in the, in the first century, that it started with Jewish believers, so people who had the background of the Old Testament and had been followers of God to some degree already. They believed on Jesus. And then it had the Gentiles, which just means the non-Jewish people. And so these were the, the native Romans who were in this community. And there culturally tended to be a lot of tension between Jews and Romans. There was a lot of tension between Romans and everybody for the reasons we just talked about because they took over. But Jews and Romans in particular, like the Jews didn't like the Romans because they had, they had uh, taken over their nation. And also they were just, they were not very, they were uncouth. They were not very devout people. And then the Romans looked at Jews like, man, you guys are uptight, you're weird, you're kind of religious, you're strange, you're always causing trouble out there in, in Palestine. There was this, this tension between, and interestingly enough, the church brought these two groups of people together, which I love that about God. I love that about the church. It's a place where God brings different people together. And the, the Jews probably had the places of leadership at the beginning of the church. But something happened in, in 49 AD, the emperor, Claudius, issued a, an edict that all the Jews had to leave Rome. So all, everybody of, of Jewish origin had to leave the city of Rome. And so when, when that happened, the Gentile believers became the leaders in the church, and the flavor of the church became much more Roman, less Jewish than it had been. And then nine years later, the emperor kind of quietly this, uh, allowed the Jews to come back. So in about 58, the Jews came back, and so they came back to a church that was very different from what they left. And there was tension between these two groups. And so Romans is not only about our individual relationship with God, but it's also about our relationships with one another and how God works through those tensions and those challenges and how our faith in Jesus changes our relationships and makes us a united community that supersedes our differences and the tensions that naturally arise. Um, so Paul writes this letter, and it's, you know, it is an epic letter. It's, many Christians would say, man, this is the, the pinnacle of the New Testament. I, you know, that's, that's a matter of opinion. But it certainly lays out, in, in this context, as Paul's writing to the Romans, he, he lays out the theology, the beliefs of, of the gospel in a more expanded way than is anywhere else in Scripture. And this has become a classic that, Millions of people have, have read and been transformed by as they've encountered God through this, this, this what's now part of our Bible. Um, another aspect of the background I just want to mention is that the, in Rome, as you may remember from your social studies or history class, it's built on seven cities. I mean, it's not seven cities, seven hills. It's built on a thousand cities, actually, because it kicked everybody's butt. But it's built on seven hills, and like a lot of a lot of cities, the, the wealthier people tended to live on the hills. So Caesar Augustus had a huge palace that occupied one of the hills. The current Caesar at the time that the Book of Romans was written, the letter to the Romans was written, was Nero, a very wicked man, and he had a palace on another one of these hills. And the wealthier people lived on the hills. And then the Tigris River, not the Tigris, but what's the river? The river went through Rome, the Tiber River, goes through the city. And like Manhattan, it tended to flood. And so 
the poorer you were, the more likely you lived close to the river, the more likely you lived in the low places, kind of like Manhattan. It's, and so the church in Rome was built, it was composed of largely people that were more poor. And so this is just, the backdrop of this book is fascinating because the first time this letter was read, it was probably a group of believers in somebody's home, in a smaller house in the poor part of town, crowded around in this room, fewer people than in this room right now, and they're, they're poor people, but then in the backdrop is the White House of their day, the epicenter of political power and economic power in the whole world. And that is Caesar, who claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be the, the loyalty oath of the Roman Empire is Caesar is Lord, that if you had to be Roman, you said Caesar is Lord. And so there's this, this very this contrast that the gospel is coming and saying it's a, it's a direct challenge to the political structures and the loyalties and allegiances of that culture. And it is saying that, what, that the real king of the world is not who claims to be king and all the known world acknowledges as king, but it's actually Jesus the Son of God. And so Paul starts writing. We're going to jump right in here. And just, you know, heads up, Paul comes in hot right in the first chapter. Like, he just, like, both, both barrels blasting. So Romans chapter 1, 1 through 5. This letter is from Paul, a slave of King Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Now, I, it's interesting that so we talked about the gospel brings freedom to slaves. But in, in 1 Corinthians 7, another letter that Paul wrote, he says, if you are a slave, then because of the gospel, you're now a freed person. But if you're a free person, you're now a slave. The gospel has both directions. It frees us, but when we recognize that Jesus is king, it also we become his slaves. We become his servants. And we talked about last week, you gotta, you're going to serve somebody. You're already, it's either a slave of Jesus or a slave of sin. So it's not a matter of if you're going to be a slave, it's a matter of who we're going to serve. But this is part of the gospel that we, brings us freedom, but also our heart response is to serve him with everything that we have. In verse 2, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. So he starts off saying it's all about this good news about King Jesus. And again, this is in direct contradiction to the context and Caesar being king and everything that that, that entails, their understanding. Um, you know, it's, I love it. It's this good news that Paul announces is good news that, about something that has happened. That was in one of our songs this morning. It's what God has done. It's not something we have to hope that he will do, but it's confidence in what God has done through sending Jesus and his death and resurrection. 
And he, the end of this, this part here is that so that they will believe and obey him. There's this connection between believing and obedience. Believing. If we, you can't separate faith and obedience. It goes together. We're going to get into this a little bit more, but it's sometimes translated the obedience of faith. When we have faith, it, it leads to obedience. Um, it could be the, the obedience that springs from faith or the obedience that faith produces. So Paul's saying, hey, we're going to talk about what faith is and how to believe in God, how it transforms you, and know that it's, it's all good. if it's real faith, it's going to lead to our lives being changed. It goes on in verse 6. And we're going to read a lot of this first chapter, not quite all of it today, but we're going to go through a lot of it. Verse 6, you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I'm writing to all of you. There's that good news for everyone. This is, God has called all of you to be his own holy people. And then in verses 8 through 15, we're going to skip that, but he continues to share his heart for them. Um, he, want, how he tells them he wants to encourage them. And hopefully he's, he hopes to visit them pretty soon. And then he jumps to the kind of the, the central thesis of this book and of this chapter. In verse 15, he says, So I'm eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. I want to bring the message of freedom. And, and think about this. These were already believers. But even if we're a believer, we still need to have the good news preached to us over and over and over again. And so he said, I want to keep preaching it because this is what this is all about. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first, and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, the righteous shall live by faith. So he's saying, it's all about this good news. It's all about this gospel. And I'm not ashamed of it. This is how we become righteous. This is for all of us. And it's, it's by faith. We're going to come back to that, so I'm going to skip it for now. Um, we're not going to say anything more about it for now. So it's good news. But remember, our topic today is dealing with facing up to the bad and the ugly. And... To appreciate the good news, you have to understand the bad news. It's kind of like your high school math textbook. You've got those answers in the back of the book, right, to the odd number questions. Do they still do that? One, three, five, seven. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nice if you, like, get stuck sometimes. I remember sometimes, like, getting stuck, couldn't figure it out, so I just, like, scribbled a few things and then put the answer at the bottom. <laughs> And the teacher just puts a big question mark, like, what? There's, there's a logical jump here. Like, no, I don't think so. But there's something about when you've been wrestling with that dang math problem, and you can't figure it out, but you've been, like, trying so hard to work it out, and then you see the answer. Like, oh, it, kind of, it, it is valuable, and it pulls everything together. But if someone just, if you just read those answers by themselves, they're, they're not going to make you very happy or excited. 
That's just like, it's not really. And a lot of times that's how we are with the good news. We're like, hey, Jesus died for you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. You're like, you know, that's nice. I'm doing pretty good already. Actually, my life's all right. Like, why do I? Okay, that's good. Of course, of course Jesus loves me. I'm a good person. Why wouldn't he love me? I'm, I'm a good, I'm nice. And so we have to understand the problem before we can understand the good news. And this rest of this chapter is one of the most well-known places where, in the Bible, where God lays out our problem. So, sorry, but we've got to deal with it right here. Facing up to the bad and the ugly. Verse 18. We read, God shows his wrath. Okay, that doesn't sound like good news. <laughs> God shows his wrath from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who push the truth away from themselves. Ooh, why? That's, that's not what my second grade teacher said I was like. She said I was wonderful. She said I'm special. This is calling me sinful and wicked, pushing the truth away from myself. And God has wrath about that. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Let's go back to what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We are image bearers. We are made in God's image. We are made to reflect him and be his image bearers. We are given a high calling and high value. And I was thinking about this when Jenny came up with the picture she saw about, you know, the, the, the toddler and the encouragement that God gives the toddler. To like, no, it's okay. You know, the parent, you're falling. That's okay. And that is true. But there, sometimes we're toddlers that we're not just like trying to walk, but we're taking a knife and sticking it in the socket. Or we're running out in the street, and we're grabbing our buddy and doing the same thing. And a parent is not going, oh, how sweet. <laughs> That's okay. No, they are upset about that. And they are dealing with that with intensity. Because that will destroy that child's life. And a good parent is going to have a measure of anger and intensity. And God has that towards us because our sin destroys our life. And it, it does not, we are, it degrades us from living the kind of life that he called us to live. So, and it says here, hey, it's not just that you like, you can't, you know, that we all have got urges, but it says there's something in us that's really evil. That what God's truth is plain to us, because he's shown it to us, but we push that truth away from ourselves. We don't want to deal with this truth. Verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they, we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's interesting how our thinking and our hearts are connected. There's a saying that really sums this up well. The mind justifies what the heart has chosen. Our hearts choose the sin that we want to do, and then our minds are incredibly nimble at justifying what we want to do. Um, where did, what did I read last? So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So instead of being image bearers, we reflect something, the creation, the created things we start worshiping and twisting in our, to our own device. It's interesting how Paul is spelling out to this little church in Rome how things all around them came to be so messed up, how the world is broken. It's arrived at its decadence because of an underlying cause. When, it's because when humans push God away and grasp for autonomy, they eventually lose all bearings. We drift into moral chaos and the loss of destiny and calling to be an image bearers. So we can see that the Roman Empire was, was very corrupt. There was immorality all around them. And, but it's not just them. It's us too. And let's look at our, our time and think, what are some of the like, belief systems, some of the way we do this individually, but we also do it as a culture. And there were some, some influential thinkers in the West, actually back in the 1800s, who came up with some philosophies that have been very influential. And actually, they were doing this very thing. They were suppressing the truth in order to live autonomously. This is what we could call the, the unholy trinity. Got three pictures here. We got Charles Darwin, who came up with a system of basically science without God. And okay, I'd love to talk about this for two hours, but we're not going to do that. But if I read a biography about him, and you read the, the, the story of how he, when he came up with that, the theory of evolution through natural selection, it was, a, there, it was easy to see there were spiritual powers at work in his life at that point. So we got science without God. We got Karl Marx, who came up with a system of economics without God. And we got Siggy Freud over here, who came up with our soul without God, looking inward at our soul without God. And so much of this way of thinking has been so influential in our culture, we don't even, we don't even realize it. But one of Darwin's um, associates was Thomas Huxley, and he became a fervent believer in this new theory of evolution. And really, I, I want to be clear, I'm not, by, by trashing evolution, I'm not saying that there is no change within species or what's sometimes called microevolution, but the idea of, of macroevolution, of species turning into another species, that, I, I'm happy to trash that and say that that's a joke, <laughs> all right? I like to call it evolution because of the reasons we're talking about. It really is. I, if you saw this chair in a desert, you would be insane if you said, wow, it's really cool how the processes of time and chance worked to bring that metal and that fabric together in such a way to form that shape. Like, nobody would do that. It's obvious that it was designed and built by somebody. And if that chair was alive, you'd really be insane <laughs> to think that that happened by itself. And every, the simplest one-cell organism is way more complex and elegant than that chair. And so it really is, we, we have enough, we know in our heart that there is a creator who's created everything. So back to, so Huxley, his grand, he had two famous grandsons, um, Julian and Aldous. Julian was famous as an evolutionary biologist. And then Aldous wrote Brave New World, 
um, he's famous for that. But these, he said this at one point. He freely admitted that the reason he bought into the theory of evolution was this. He said, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness, and if you read the whole context of what he's saying here, he's, meaninglessness is another word for humanism, or life without God. So it's life without this, this greater overarching purpose and meaning. The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There it is. That's pretty much what's going on. All right? You look behind all the like, arguments and debates and philosophies, the mind justifies what the heart has chosen. And our human nature, apart from God, apart from being redeemed by God, is to justify our temptation, our desire to live free and liberated, and especially morally, sexually, to do what we want without uh, accountability to God. Now, it's nothing to do with science, just to rationalize our own sexual appetite. Um, it's interesting today, actually, to me, that many scientists are saying, you know what, we just, if we're going to be good scientists, it's time to admit that this theory is not good science. And there are secular scientists all over. There's this movement, really, this, this momentum in the scientific community to say, all right, like, this is not science. Well, at the same time, a lot of Christians are saying, oh, man, like, people aren't going to believe us unless we, like, accommodate our beliefs to fit this system. There is a guy, you may have heard of Alan, Alan Sandage, was one of the most influential astronomers of the 20th century. He was, worked with, with Edwin Hubble, who the, the, the Hubble uh, telescope is named after. So very prominent, influential astronomer. He was, along with, with Marx, and like Marx and Freud, he was an agnostic Jew by background. But through his study of the cosmos, the more he studied, he, he saw, man, this complexity, this elegance, the, the way things work together, this does, not this does not make sense without its chance and random forces. This clearly points to an intelligent designer. But as he was dealing with this process, you know, internally, he, he was resistant to the idea. And he asked himself, what is in me that's pushing this truth away? Like, the evidence is actually pointing in one direction. But internally, I do not want to go there. I don't want to go there. And so, but it hit him, like, he had the honesty to say, okay, what's, what's going on? And he, he said this, eventually. He actually became a Christian. Um, he spent a lot of the rest of his life talking about how science actually supports Christianity, and you need God to have an appreciation for science in the world. He said, it was my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. It's only through the supernatural that I can understand the mystery of existence. And that's, that's the reality. But we don't do that. We oftentimes don't do that. We exchange the truth of a lie 
the truth of God for a lie. Um, back to Romans uh, verse 24. What's the natural and inevitable result when we do this? Well, it says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Um, where is this going to lead? To, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the cre- creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed, or the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Now it's passages like this that help us understand why in the last week or two when NFL quarterback Drew Bledsoe released a seemingly innocent video to me saying, encouraging kids to read the Bible and take their Bibles to school. There's a massive pushback. It's like, wow, he's just saying read the Bible and take your Bibles to school. But it's, it's like, no, this is totally contrary to what our culture is promoting. When we exchange the truth of God for a lie, then God's created order in human life itself is distorted from the, from the Creator's intention. And Paul is just implicitly assuming here there is a created order. God's creation is, is not arbitrary. And he's... He's upfront about that. He's, he understands something that our culture is slow to understand is that humans are commanded to be fruitful. God's purpose for us is to have an abundant life. The purpose of our lives, the purpose of our relationships is to, to bring life. The purpose of sexuality is to bring life. And there's, when we go our own way, it doesn't bring life. It brings destruction. And God is intent on saying, calling us back to the created intent that he has for us. Now it says in there, it's kind of tough, God gave them up. That can be a hard thing to, it's easy to be offended by that. I think what he's saying here is that God is saying, you know what? You want to you follow the path of your sin? All right, I will let you go down that path. As, as an image bearer, as someone with free will, you can live out the consequences of your choices. And God does that with us. He says, all right, this, you can live out the consequences of what you've decided. Often to many of us who have come to faith in Jesus, we would say, you know what, that is what led me to faith in Jesus. Is I was living out the consequences of my actions, of my sins, and it hit rock bottom. It did not work. And I realized, okay, I need God. So God graciously, actually, like, gives us a chance to see what our own Life, life leads to. Um, but worshiping God always makes us less than, than fully human. It, it, it makes us less than what we God intended us to be. It puts us out of joint from the way we're supposed to be. I right, wrapping up the chapter here. Verse 28. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. And we may be thinking of the things listed in the last few verses. But let's look at the next few verses. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, 
say, my quirling's in the same category as all this sexual immorality and murder? Oh, man, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. Your second grade teacher didn't read you this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Maybe if, 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 you, if she did, you're very, should be grateful. But, man, this is the human condition. Our hearts are prone to sin. We're given over to all sorts of evil. They refuse to understand. Ah, it's so true. Not that they don't understand. They refuse to understand. It's like, I don't understand. They break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them, too. So that is dark and disturbing. But you know what's really dark and disturbing about all this? Is what's alarming about this to me is where I see a person like this is when I look in the mirror. Not like, oh, man, yeah, people are so bad. But, God, man, I, my, my heart apart from Christ, my heart before Christ changed me, and the parts of me that are not yet transformed by Jesus, that is, that is the bad and the ugly that is in me. And it's not something that can just be glossed over, but it's got to be dealt with. It's got to be addressed. God, as, as a just and good holy God, must, must deal with that. N.T. Wright, the theologian, says this. He says, the line between good and evil runs not between us and them, but right down the middle of each one of us. That's where the, the tension between good and evil is. So that's the bad news. But thank God there's good news. Thank God there's good news. But we gotta, and part of our understanding personally and part of our communication of the gospel has to include the bad news, or it's not really the gospel. But let's loop back to our key verse that we looked at earlier, Romans 1, 16 through 17. Read, I'm going to read it again. For I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, the righteous will live by faith. Now, this salvation, this transformation that God has for us is by faith. That means it's for everyone who believes. And faith is not just, sometimes we think of faith as the opposite of doubt. And there's an element of that, but it's, or we think of faith as the opposite of sight. What we can't see is faith. And there, there's an, that's, that's somewhat, that's partially what faith is, but it's also the opposite of doubt. And so faith is a settled conviction that God raised Jesus from the dead, and he is the king. And when we hear the message of the gospel, when God is activating that in our hearts, the evidence of that is that this rings true, that there is something in us that knows that Jesus is king. He is Lord, and God raised him from the dead. And with that is a promise that those who believe the gospel are declared right in God's sight. It's, 
It's not us by like trying to be better, trying to overcome our, but it's our, our, our sin. But it's if I believe who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and with his resurrection, then God declares me righteous. He declares me righteous before him. It's a, it's a legal verdict. It's what a judge would declare when someone was, it's either innocent or guilty. Innocent or righteous. Or, sorry, guilty or righteous. He was righteous. And when this faith takes hold of us, it leads to our obedience. When this faith takes hold of us, it leads to us growing as followers of Jesus and obeying him more. Um, it also leads to us sharing that news with others. Because we realize, man, this gospel, this good news changed my life. And somehow, just as Paul was excited to bring this news to people around him, just as the message of the end of, of slavery had to go out for slaves to experience freedom, there's something about God has chosen to use us proclaiming this message to others and to the world that spreads, that brings the restoration of the world all around us. And so it's through people that God calls to himself that he puts the world at rights, up to rights all around us. Um, so this is what he's doing, and we're just kind of laying the foundation today. Um, we're going to keep breaking this down more and more over the next several weeks. But wherever you're at today, you, if you're here today and you say, you know, I have never responded to the gospel. I've never realized that I am a sinner and I need a savior and a new king. But today, man, I believe that I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is, is savior and king. I'm ready to respond to him. Then, man, that can, that can be your response and you can enter into God's kingdom right now. Uh, maybe you need to re recenter your life today with Jesus as your king. Or maybe you need to not be ashamed of this good news. And you need to say, God, help me to be empowered to share this good news with others. I'm gonna, let's pray together and ask God to help us in this. Lord, thank you for your good news for everyone. Thank you that you deal with the ugly and the bad in the world and in us. Thank you that your gospel, your good news, is the power to transform us. It's the power to forgive us. It's the power to free us. It's the power to help us yield our knee to you, bow our knee to you, and follow you. God, will you help your gospel to take effect in our lives? Wherever you, bring, wherever you desire to bring that about. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's a